Hello and welcome to the Miseducation of the SLP. My name is Ingrid and I am joined by wonderful Ashanti. Hi Ashanti. Hello everyone. How are you? So we are coming before you as we sing Lionel Richie. <laughs> <laughs> and neither one of us knows all the words. So we was... are like I love you. I love you. So we come here with deep discussion, of course, led by Lionel Richie. Yes, yes. <laughs> because we are here to be about you, our SLP listeners, or anybody who's actually listening in regards to how we do this craft as speech language pathologists. And we've had the pleasure in episode four and episode five to kind of talk about each of our own perspectives. And now we're just kind of leaping into the to the real nitty gritty of how to kind of execute that kind of work where you're really focusing your energy on how to be really focused on patients, honoring evidence-based practice, operating with an understanding that there can be a gap between you, the two and you fill in that gap. Right, yes. Shanti? Mm-hmm. Correct. Correct. So it does require a little bit of mute music. And you just have to look at your patient and be like, I love you. Like you gotta <laughs> you gotta make sure you're able to achieve those outcomes. There you go. So Ashanti's um done a little digging, myself included, but we are going to have Ashanti do a little a little presentation in this episode to just kind of help you guys formalize a little bit like what's up? A what's up? Like how are we doing this? What is what is the directionality on this experience based on her clinical expertise, what she understands about what it means to be a good clinician that fills in for the spaces that evidence-based practice does not. So take it away. <laughs> wow. No pressure. No I pressure, I just gave guys. you the platform, girl. Hello. Dang, homie. Just dropping the mic and like walking away like, all right, you got this. Mm-hmm. Well, oh, my mama. Oh, my hood. <laughs> she look fly. She look she good. Look good. Mm-hmm. Let's go ahead and let you. Let's, let's go ahead for it. Go ahead. All right. Well, the first thing I wanted to really kind of dig into is when do you stop feeling that imposter syndrome? Because it seems to be kind of that common denominator for all of us in the profession. Um, some of us, maybe not as much. You know, Ingrid is the the superwoman in this and that. She was like, whatever, I know my stuff. I have but- a problem with, I have a problem with. <laughs> You know, a lack of confidence. It's really not my superpower. Yeah, you are not a confident person at all. I'm I'm really good at faking it and making it. I will will make my confidence the truth every day. There you go. There you go. Um, So when I, you know, when I was kind of pondering this point, you know, when did I feel as if I'm not the imposter? I am the SLP. I am boss lady in this realm. And you guys are going to listen to me. I think it was... For me, it was when I felt like I wasn't being micromanaged or told how to do my job any longer. Um, there, there comes that moment when you just stop taking the junk and you assert yourself and you show people, this is my wheelhouse. 
this is how I know it needs to be done. And this is how I'm going to operate because I'm the one that holds the license. I'm the one that signs the paperwork, right? So I don't know, Ingrid, if you had any, well, I'm sure you had several moments like this where you were just like, "Uh uh-uh, what you guys think is correct is not correct. And here's why. Absolutely. Do you want to dig into any little anecdotals, anecdotal stories? I mean, my biggest thing when it comes to areas where I'm like, oh, you want me to do it this way? Mm -hmm. That's so not going to work for the patient. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Really comes from spaces where there's a gap in like what I'm supposed to be doing. So for example, the biggest one is when I was living in Hawaii and I'm dealing with families that literally only speak Hawaiian Mm -hmm. and the objective for them for dysphagia intervention is to be able to get them to eat. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately there's no real like execution of the exercises that we recommend for strengthening. Right. So I had to come up with like super new ones that included food because they were not not eating. And culturally, listen, culturally, their lives revolve around food, just like any other culture. It's like any sort of family gathering, there is just a buttload of delicious stuff. So how are you going to tell them that their tutu or I I forget the word for grandmother cannot eat, cannot partake, you know, like who are you to tell them? No. Right. Right. And also to take that point further, who are you to say, well, we're going to just try this applesauce and these graham crackers when what they really want is some poke and they want chicken long rice and they want Kahlua pig. (laughs) Like who are you, who are you to tell them? Their appetite is not shy, okay? Correct, so, correct. I'm going to be like, you know what? Let us consider mashing up the Spam with mm-hmm. this rice mm-hmm. in this, like, broth mm-hmm. and see how that works um, and hope they don't die. Let's start there. Let's, Let's start really there. start there. And, yeah. like, hopefully they're ambulatory so that you have the opportunity to kind of get them walking subsequent to consumption because that helps the cardiopulmonary vascular system, which I was super aware of, that you can tolerate a certain level of aspiration if you have a certain level of cardiovascular, um, cardio, cardiopulmonary, excuse me, cardiopulmonary mm-hmm. strength. Mm-hmm. So if you combine those two things on top of the like risk that you may have, maybe I can get you where you need to go. So yeah, I know that chewing is not really awesome. So let's like soften this, but let's present it as super normal. And then right. we will mash it, modify it in front of you. Right. Um, because we know that you cannot chew and then you eat it. And I just kept rinse washing and repeating that and telling them to keep that up until that was tolerated. Then I moved to the next texture. I, of course, during my sessions, implemented chewing but if it was just based on the x-ray modified barium swallow study yeah yeah they're not eating because everything looks (laughs) awful awful and awful Mm -hmm. and i'm willing to bet money that there's no you know standardized assessment or research-based papers on let's mash up the spam and add it to this rice and put some you know some gravy on there and 
see if it goes well. Like it's just, it's just not out there. Well, there was really no standardized intervention subsequent to the evaluation that was not right. M- MBS IMP. And even the MBS IMP, which is a wonderful standardized way of absolutely a person swallow, let us not discount this, you know, uh, intervention to have like an objective view. I literally understood the doctors in Hawaii were not doing this. Like they just were not, you know, at the time it wasn't even invented, right? Right. So MBS IMP wasn't there at the time. It was like 2013. Oh my gosh, 10 years. Okay. All right. Dang. Yeah. Dang. Oh, oh, I said it. Ouch. I said it. I Ouch. Said it. Oh. <laughs> so the reality is I didn't have that in place. And even if I did, I wouldn't know that I would necessarily have the opportunity to execute the evaluation because the reality is a lot of radiology suites don't just, they just don't have that kind of time to do it right. to the, the, the level of, of objective and consistent data that we need. So there was no intervention invented. Right. So all of that to say, all of that to say is that you used your, for lack of a better way of putting it, boots on the ground experience to provide this patient something that was culturally appropriate, culturally sensitive to what their needs are, what their wants are. And you kind of had to just, uh, you know, tip your hat to the norm referenced to the, the research-based stuff and say, I see you, I hear you, but this is the route I'm going because this is what my patient needs. Absolutely, which is a really rebellious way of doing this practice. And hello, guess who's the revolutionary in speech language pathology? (laughs) Totally within line of my personality to take research and evidence and look at it and go, wow, this is great. This doesn't apply. (laughs) Right. This This doesn't work. So for this person, for this person, I I need to be very clear. Right. I'm not saying I'm not challenging it. Right. I'm not challenging it completely to say this is ineffective. Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying. Don't come at me. I'm saying <laughs> for, <laughs> for this particular client, for this particular patient, it's not what they needed. Right. And because I was a scientist by that point, because I graduated in 2009 uh, or eight, I graduated in 2008 and I had been practicing from 2009 into 2013-ish when I was doing this kind of care. I was just like, okay, I'm solid if, I'm solid enough in the profession to register like this ain't going to work, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what do I do? I don't know much about Hawaiian culture. I, I'm just here like enjoying the views and I think it's just super pretty. And like there's also language that I need to address for some patients that – have had like brain injuries or stroke. There's like cognition, there's a multitude of things, but the place that I was the strongest in terms of my patient-centered care and most successful was dysphagia with people that were from a different um, cultural background with the language and, and the culture and everything. I was limping along because I was spending my time studying with family and studying myself on my own evenings. Like there's just things I had not developed by the time I was there. And I was only there for like three, four months to kind of execute that individualized care that required accommodations for them. So the reality. And so in in that space, you had to really fast forward and dig in and, and absorb everything that you could about the culture, about the language, about those families. 
facts with mm-hmm. lots and lots of questioning and, yes. and understanding that um, when I went into a room and I registered with great intensity, like as they were speaking to me and all that stuff, I'm like, I can't approach this the same way that I've been taught. I have to go back to the beginning and create something completely new. So that was mm-hmm. really, that was really part of the practice. Excellent. Excellent. So again, a grand example of every now and then you just, you know, salute the research and you say, yes, I see you. You are there. You are important. You are seen. However, this is how I need to do this for this client, for this patient. <sighs> what a come to Jesus moment. I know. I feel like there's a lot for the, for, you know, the SLPs that will eventually listen to this. There's that like, oh, are you, are you sure? Oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. Like for lack of a better way of putting it, there's a lot of booty holes that are clenched right now. Like, oh my God, this is so uncomfortable. Ooh, don't tell me, you know, don't tell me (laughs) not to reference this or don't tell me to kind of, you know, go off, go off script here. It's just so much work, you know, like Mm. I don't have a husband. I don't have no kids. I have a really singular focus, which was to do this job really well, which Mm -hmm. I mentioned in the past. Like I focused a lot of my um, energy into being just a good clinician. It had very little to do with being a good academic Mm -hmm. or a good employee. Like I've said before, like these are not things that were my target. It was literally just, if I'm a great clinician, And in my mind, I didn't think that being a great clinician wouldn't have a good outcome. Like, I just always thought, well, I'll be respected for this, right? Yeah. So I did it to the changing landscape of the United States of America, regardless of the fact that what was available to me in terms of research didn't reflect the demographic of our society. Mm Mm-hmm. And there's nothing wrong with being able to do that and be an individual, no matter what background you're from, to kind of break open your thought about being a diverse interventionalist, regardless of where you're from. You just have to do it with the understanding that you have that potential. Like, I love the idea that, yes, let us all get into DEI and have more diversity within the space. But I also understand there's another responsibility for us at the status of a, you know, a a skewed type of populace. Let us all just adopt diverse thinking and Mm -hmm. practices. This is something to consider as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hence the miseducated SLP. (laughs) We are here to re-educate you that you can be a diverse clinician without being diverse. You can be white normative and still do diverse care. (laughs) And that is my song. Hello. (laughs) You just had a Disney you had a Disney princess moment. I hope you're staring at water and there's a little birdie landing on your shoulder. I mean, I understand. I understand. I want to be where the, where, the di- are. where the diverse SLPs are. <laughs> I want to. I want to see. Want to see them treating. <laughs> <laughs> oh my Showing gosh. examples of <laughs> what do you call it? 
diversity. <laughs> oh my gosh, we've lost it. We've lost all control. Ultimately, but the reality yeah. is true. Like anyone can do this care. It does not require being from a diverse background to do it. Maybe you need help in the strategies which is what we're here for in Absolutely. helping to solidify that for you. But the reality is like, it doesn't take diverse individuals to do care for diverse patients. It takes people that are interested in being diverse interventionalists. Right. Right. Wow. So going back to what, you know, the question I asked you was, you know, was there a moment where you realized, okay, I know what I'm talking about. This is how we're going to deal with this. This is how we're moving forward because I am the licensed practitioner here, right? Um, for me, I always felt super duper micromanaged in the skilled nursing setting. And it was mostly because I was a contractor. I was there short term. Um, you know, it was always, this is how much time you can bill. This is how much time you can be on the clock, blah, blah, blah. So I didn't really experience kind of what you felt in that kind of freedom to do what was needed, to do what was appropriate, until I went back into the school SLP setting. Um, I think by then I moved to California. And at that time, there was the the national shortage for SLPs um, was really starting to to balloon, I guess. Um, and so the contract that I took at that time, because, you know, it's what I could find. It was, it's what, it's what was closest to where I lived. Um, I was entering into a space where they had a shortage. They, they had sites where they didn't have an SLP for so long. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm walking into something where there's a lot of things, uh, expired IEPs, um, kids that haven't received any minutes. Um, and, at the time, I was working for two schools that were on a military base, you know, being a military spouse. I understood that, um, I guess, the climate of, of the military family, how you just pick up and move and, and cross your fingers that everything goes well at your next duty station. Mm -hmm. um, so there were a lot of instances where everyone was doing their best, whether it be teacher or um case manager, school psychologist, what have you. Everyone was doing their best. But when I went in there, I was like, okay, here's, a, here's the problem. <laughs> These kids have been pushing forward, been pushed forward on IEPs. They don't need to be on IEPs. Here's why. You know, These kids are not actually experiencing a language impairment. It's a language you know, difference because of the other languages that they speak. And it was, it was a lot of educating. And thankfully, the principals and um, case managers for each of those sites were very much, okay, great. Thank you so much for, for just taking the reins and running with it. Because mm. the, the people that were filling those spots, and, and I'm not throwing shade at the CF, but the people that were filling those spots were CFs, and they just needed a lot more guidance that, than what was available. And so they were in the sense of, you know, the CF would go in, be completely over their head and quit. CF meaning, you know, for those that don't know the lingo, clinical fellow, it's a person that just graduated and is trying to accumulate all of the hours that they need to be fully licensed. Um, so 
so yeah, I was entering into that space and that's where I was like, okay, this is, this is where I feel most confident. Um, this is how we're going to deal with this. This is how we're going to move forward for these kids. This is how we're going to take care of this. And, and just kind of, uh, setting and setting uh, trailblazing, so to speak, the, the ways to manage these students that are more transient than the typical student because of the military lifestyle. Mm. So now did I encounter times where I did a reeval and everything was norm referenced and everything had great crispy edges and was gift wrapped with a bow and a, and a gift card. Absolutely. But there were so many others that just did not fit the mold of a child that can be identified correctly as, as to what their needs are with standardization, with norm referenced data, with, you know, those sort of things. Mm. So I think maybe it was kind of like, you know, a godsend that I ended up at those two school sites. I think um, the district put me there because I had base access and they didn't need to pay for anything extra for background checks or anything. But, you know, mm-hmm. they use that to their advantage. However, I I think for those kids, I was what they needed. And, and I was really, you know, I, I did a really good job with, with what I entered into because it was a mess. And, and that's typical for a contractor. You do kind of go into the messy situations and clean it up to the best of your abilities, right? Which is a reflection of our dis- our discipline. Like when you're somebody who really is focused on patient-centered care and not just kind of a rote exercise of the practice, which there's a variety of types of clinicians and we all have to decide what version we want to be. And there is no wrong way to do this job except in the viewpoint of patients. Mm -hmm. So if you're more focused on being thought about from that perspective, like I care that my patient wants me to do a good job, you absolutely will be an individual that can't enter into the craft and then just take on what somebody else has done. You'll actually reevaluate them and yourself because there's a relationship at any given moment between the clinician and the patient in terms of achieving outcomes. And honestly, it's a different one for every person that's in front of that patient. We are all individual in that. So if you don't spend the time with the patient, figure out what they are individually looking for to obtain from you, you're kind of doing yourself a disservice. Mm -hmm. Um, There's a lot of context that goes into that with people from diverse backgrounds who consider, um, to be perfectly frank, white Americans to be the devil, which I've heard and I've encountered. And I've been spoken to in that just as the same way that I've been a provider and my patient thought that I was a very inappropriate term. Oh, I, <laughs> in the skilled nursing setting, I had one old lady that she was just, every time I walked in, those dang Puerto Ricans, they're mm. so dirty. They're so this, they're so mm. that. And, you know, I, <laughs> you just have to grin and bear it and mm. So we've with had kindness. We've had it. There's there's the opportunity of both ways. Mm-hmm. 
where I understand that my sister people in the discipline are operating with the fact that maybe there are some patients that look at them as white devils. And then there are people that look at me as a provider and think that I am the problem. And ultimately the neutrality of how I operate in those spaces, but still focused on the patient is really a superpower, but I'm emotionally disciplined because I come from a place of a lack of uh, indulgence in, oh, you don't like that? Oh, we don't care. Right, right. We don't care. Oh my God. I know it sucks, but we don't care. Like I'm Mm -hmm. born, bred, forged from the fires of that. Like that's my my nature, which is why I'm a tough cookie. Um, Anything can really happen to me and I'm like, well, that was supposed to hurt, but because I've been rejected a majority of my life, I kind of bounced off because there's an objective, which is patient-centered care, not your racism, not your biases, right, right. not your crap. That's not right. the objective of this session. This right. session is about getting you what you need. So I appreciate that you want to vent about, oh, you're so glad that I'm, you know, like you and you feel safe with me. And if you had someone else, you would think a different thought and blase, blase, blase. Still not my objective. Correct. Or if you think that I'm a piece of crap and you want to berate me, again, not the objective. So I'm not the objective. Gonna ignore that too. That type of focus on professionalism and executing the practice to the best of your ability, if you're interested in patient-centered care, that's my sweet spot. And if you want to get there, we can absolutely have that kind of conversation and achieve that because it is feasible. Mm-hmm. Within the times, the within the construct of business models, because I also was very successful at doing that and looking at business models and going, "Ha! I love that you think that I'm going to do this in this time frame, but actually, this patient needs this time frame, and I'm going to explain why, and I'm going to advocate for it because I am the expert in the room, and I'm going to tell you this is not enough, and I'm going to do mm-hmm. it so uncomfortably, it's going to make you wonder." Because I'm going to always go over minutes. You are always going to pull me in. You're going to be ready to write me up. I am that person. (laughs) Because I'm the one doing the care, not Medicare, not Medicaid, not Blue Cross Blue Shield, me. So why are you telling me how much time I get to do it? But that's a girl. I was just going to say, (laughs) so yeah, I broke a lot of rules as a clinician constantly and forever. And it was something that I did very well for many, many years and allowing for patients to get exactly what they needed. But I am almost certain the places that you worked never saw another clinician such as yourself. My goodness. Down to the high ponytail and the mismatching socks. I'm a a vibe. I'm a vibe. I'm a different kind of thing. I'm a different animal. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Ashanti, this was so refreshing. Is there anything else you want to add? No, not at this point. I think, um, you know, there are some other points to ponder, you know, really digging into going rogue versus using standardization and norm referenced items or, you know, practices. But, um, but yeah, I think, I think we segued into that pretty well and we can dig into it more later. Yeah. We're going to look into like these aspects of like, how do we do evidence-based practice and patient-centered care and achieve objectives for patients all in one sitting 
there's a there's a navigation of that. There's also the international lens. What is the international view on speech language pathology in the United States of America? That's going to be some interesting stuff to digest, discuss, unfold, absolutely, and reveal because the international community does have an opinion about ASHA and how we practice here in the United States, and so. That's going to be something we introduce as well, because there's just not one perspective that makes us okay. Mm, I'm sorry, what? There's not just one one perspective, huh? No. We have, <laughs> we have educated and advanced learners from other countries looking at us going, <clears throat> knock, 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 knock. Hello, pick me, pick me. <laughs> we got opinions out here in these streets too. And yeah. because the science of speech-language pathology is really advanced here, versus other places um, in the sense of what we've accomplished, they're working to keep up, but they're now criticizing how we do it. So mm. I cannot wait to dig into that in our um, next few episodes. We're going to have these conversations as well as <laughs> strategies that can be employed for SLPs to implement. So keep tuned, keep present, and keep learning. Yes. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and listening. Yeah, day. So... You can reach us as always at miseducatedslp at gmail.com. You can absolutely reach us on Instagram with miseducatedslp. Facebook also is an available avenue. I myself am the advocate SLP. Ashanti is Ashanti underscore Unicar. Like she's <laughs> she's all the stuff, but we tag it and we share. Um, but yeah, ultimately, just come find us if you find what we're talking about to be interesting, and we can continue to discuss ways that you can grow your practice yes. to being as dope as you can be as a clinician based on your yes. bandwidth and your interest to be patient-centered. So we're here for you in that. Yeah, don't be shy. Let's chat. All right. You guys have a wonderful, wonderful Tuesday, and talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>